Hi, I'm Valerie, and you're listening to The Beauty Brains. Welcome to The Beauty Brains, a show where real scientists answer your beauty questions and give you an insider's look at the beauty product industry. I'm your host, Valerie George, and this is episode 189. On today's episode, we're going to be answering your beauty concerns about hair color after henna, finding a real red lipstick, and high girl fatigue. Is that a real thing? Before we jump in... It's, tri- it's really tricky to say, isn't it? <laughs> yeah, I'm like, hi, girl. Before we jump in, please welcome my co-host, who is not only a famous cosmetic chemist, according to Google, but is also the champion on the Commonwealth Tavern 2019 Winter Euchre League, Perry Romanowski. Hi, Perry. Hello, Valerie. Yes, um, my partner and I, we crushed all opponents in our u- weekly Euchre game, and we had playoffs, and we won. Yeah, so Congratulations. Exciting. Yeah, so for those of you who don't know what Euchre is, it's a card game that's extremely popular in the Midwest. I don't know a lot of people who play it elsewhere, and Perry happens to be really good at it. Yeah, and don't even bother putting greatest euchre player ever in Google and seeing who's come up. I don't, <laughs> I don't even know like who would come up. <laughs> yeah, Perry, you figured out SEO optimization pretty early. That's pretty cool. I, I did not. I just write about card games mm-hmm. and beauty products, too. <laughs> hey, Valerie, uh, you know, I, it's been a little while since we recorded, but uh, I've been listening to some podcasts. What have you been listening to? Well, I listen, you know, you know that uh, podcast, uh, that other beauty podcast, uh, Fat Mascara. Yes, I do. That's on my playlist, too. Yeah, uh, there's uh, Jess and Jen, and they're from New York, and they're very New York, and they remind me so much of when I would visit desktops. We would, like, as a chemist, I would sometimes fly out to New York when we were launching a new product, and we would do these desk side interviews with beauty editors, and they're very much like those beauty editors. But I was listening to it, and and usually their their stuff is their stuff is pretty good. If, you know, sometimes I don't I'm not interested in who they're interviewing or something. But they always do like a little a little talk about products and stuff, which is kind of interesting. But one of their recent episodes, they talked about talc, and I think they were passing on some information, which I just want to I just I just want to implore to them that this isn't really correct information because they specifically said, one of them said, that talc was responsible for causing cancer. Mm. And I just want to get this out there that talc has never been proven or even associated with causing cancer. The evidence is more that talc doesn't cause cancer. So I just just want to get that out there. So fat mascara girls, please, (laughs) talc is not causing cancer. Despite that, you know, their jury awards, and I understand that, but a jury does not base their decisions solely on science, and the science for this um, it really hedges toward it not being a problem or causing cancer. Yeah, it's really important, and we have a question later in today's episode, too, that just addresses when you are passing on information or conveying information to an audience that you get the facts right, because that's how more misinformation spreads. Well, I'm glad that you're able to make a correction. Were you able to contact them regarding it? No, I did not. This this is my contact because <laughs> I figure our audiences overlap a little bit, right? All right, maybe. Yeah. Okay. Uh, we also did get some feedback on a previous episode. We talked about how to find the perfect foundation online, and Nat did drop us a line from across the world and said that there is a website. We'll put it in the show notes that can assist you with finding the perfect foundation color. It's called Findation, which is a mix between find and foundation, which is 
pretty smart. But basically what you do is go on the website, list some colors that you currently have. And I think there's an assumption that they're your perfect matches if you're already wearing them. And then it generates a very large list of what else could work for you. So maybe our listeners could check it out. Yeah, very interesting. That was follow-up from, I think, from our last episode, 188. Maybe our listeners will find some success using it. Nat did say it doesn't work 100% perfectly each and every time, but it can at least provide some guidance. So thanks so much for providing that feedback, Nat. We do appreciate feedback. Well, this week was big in beauty news. Nature's Truth recalls wintergreen essential oil was an article I came across a few times. Did you hear about that, Perry? I saw you passed on the article, but yeah, it's very interesting there. Wintergreen essential oil being recalled. Yeah, so the Consumer Product Safety Commission published a recall regarding Nature's Truth, a manufacturer of supplements. Nature's Truth retails a product called wintergreen essential oil, And now the brand is issuing a recall and the product is no longer available on their site or affiliate websites. Hey, Valerie, why are they recalling it? Well, it's an unusual reason. Usually recalls in cosmetics come from bacterial contamination, but this recall is because the packaging fails to meet the child-resistant standards set by the Poison Prevention Packaging Act of 1970. Have you ever heard of that? No, I have not heard of that one, but it's good to see that... uh... Supplements are getting a little bit regulated. Yeah, so this act um, actually covers a lot of sectors, but the Poison Prevention Packaging Act of 1970 is a law put into place to help decrease the rate of child deaths related to poisoning from items found in the household. The intent of the law is to implement packaging that essentially slows children down when they have something in their hands and they're trying to open it and the contents are poisonous or hazard. Essentially, if the contents can pose harm to a child, it has to be in child-resistant packaging. Sometimes those things are a little bit more than just child-resistant. They're kind of hard to get open. Well, there are some guidelines for that. So the law specifically states that the packaging required must be designed or constructed to be significantly difficult for children under five years of age to open within a reasonable time and not difficult for normal adults to use properly. So they they did throw that in there. And Ah, the hope of the law, and it actually has worked, is that by slowing children down from opening packaging, again, not preventing them from opening it, but slowing them down from opening it, there has been a significant reduction in child deaths due to poisoning since the 60s, which is pretty cool. But that does lead to a question, like, this is an essential oil, so why does this essential oil need a child safety resistant packaging? Well, essential oils sound pretty great. They're natural, they're therapeutic. You know, they're known for healing and all these other benefits, but that doesn't mean they're always safe. Wintergreen essential oil is an essential oil extracted from the leaves of an evergreen native to North America. The essential oil doesn't actually occur naturally in the plant when it's cold pressed, but when the plant decays, uh, specifically the leaf, when the leaf decays in warm water, the essential oil or major component is released from the decomposition process, which I thought was pretty cool. The major component of wintergreen essential oil is roughly 98% methyl salicylate, and this is a compound in pure form used in pharmaceuticals, perfumery, and consumer goods where sweet minty flavors or aromas are required, like toothpaste. It's also one of the ingredients found in Bengay, right? Yes, huge component of Bengay. 
So methyl salicylate rarely comes from the true oil nowadays in those applications I previously mentioned. It's typically synthetically made. And what is so bad about this compound? Well, it can be irritating, sensitizing, and toxic. It's an environmental hazard, a marine pollutant. And there is such a thing as um, salicylate poisoning, and that can occur when too high of a dose of salicylate exposure occurs. And methyl salicylate specifically is actually poisonous at a lower dose than all of the other salicylates. So that's why oh, wow. it is worrisome, and it can be fatal in children. Now, don't forget before you uh, throw away your Bengay and all of your toothpaste and anything else, dose does make the poison. For adults, um, it's fine at low levels, but um, you know if you're eating your toothpaste, that may be a different story. Right, right. Don't swallow your toothpaste. <laughs> yeah. So I was actually pretty surprised that this company had to issue this recall because the Poison Prevention Packaging Act guidelines seem pretty fundamental for any business selling consumer goods. Even in the cosmetics industry, you have to write warnings on your packaging to keep out of reach yeah. of children, you know, when they have contents in them that may may not be great. And this company has sold supplements for a long time, so you would think that they would know to put this packaging on their essential oil. And the essential oil, wherever they buy it from, it comes with a safety data sheet. And a safety data sheet is a document that lists any hazardous materials present, their physical and chemical properties, effects on human health, environmental exposure, aquatic life, and how to handle the material during a spiller exposure, and including first aid procedures if you're exposed. In the safety data sheet for wintergreen essential oil, it clearly states methyl salicylate is present as a hazardous good and that it's toxic. So I'm not uh. sure why Nature's Truth didn't look at it or didn't take it into consideration. And actually, it's not the brand's first recall for failure to implement child-resistant packaging. It's their oh, second boy. that I could find. They previously had to recall slow-release iron, 45 milligram in 2017, for the same topic. So... This is an important reminder to all of our listeners to keep anything out of the reach of children, hazardous or not. I've always found uh, the supplement industry to be dubious as far as safety goes. Yeah. If you've ever worked at a restaurant in your safety training, have been shown any chemicals or supplies that you're using, um, or even in a hair salon, if you're using products, basically if you're a worker being exposed to anything, uh, safety yeah. data sheets... Are available to you as a worker so that you understand what exposure that you have. And if you're interested in how to read a safety data sheet, I wrote an article for Chemist Corner a while back, link in the show notes, and you can learn how to read one yourself. Yeah, excellent. An excellent uh, article about safety data sheets. All right, Valor, should we move on to our next story? Yeah, what'd you read about this week? You know, uh, one of the subjects that I find interesting is the notion of sustainability. This is an area that I believe is is a, a, a laudable goal for the cosmetic industry to embrace. It can help the environment, and I think it's much better than just going for like natural or clean, which I think those those claims are kind of vapid. But the idea of sustainability really, really can have an impact on the environment. Now, I've always been a bit skeptical of the hype around organic and natural beauty products and and even now this this clean beauty products and it seems to me that people are talking way too much about the features of their products and not about the beauty benefit 
it also seems to me that people buy products to solve problems. And all of this other stuff is just marketing fluff. And according to this article published in GCI magazine, market research kind of seems to support that belief of mine. There is a company called the Benchmarking Company that surveyed more than 7,300 U.S. female beauty consumers, and they were asking them about sustainability. And they found a few interesting things. Now, first, they asked people about why they made their purchases. Now, I'm not sure people ever know why they make a purchase. I mean, I I think sometimes I would like, why did I buy a, a Dr. Pepper today instead of a Diet Coke? I have no idea. I just, I just felt like it. Do you know why you buy things, Valerie? Yeah, so sometimes, you know, I know why I'm buying something, and other times I think I buy things out of habit. I'm a, a creature of habit, so I tend not to stray too far. So in my ongoing purchase decisions, I'm not very... I guess, critical of why am I buying this? I just sort of do it out of habit, I guess. Yeah, you know, I've read a, a bit about the human brain, and a lot of times we come up with reasons after something happened to justify why it happened, and that's not really what originally drove us. It's very interesting. <laughs> <laughs> but anyway, let's get back to this survey. According to their survey, the top three factors that people considered when buying a product included Number one was product efficiency. Oh, I was going to say paraben-free, but that's fine. (laughs) No, No, number one was product efficacy. Number two was the product price. Mm. And then the third thing that influenced people's decision was what consumer reviews or claims were on there. There we go. That's our paraben-free ticket. (laughs) Exactly. Uh, But actually, the idea of natural ingredients, that was only reported by about 30% of the respondents, which makes sense if you consider that natural cosmetics really only make up about 20% of the market. So it's while it gets a lot of press on the internet, natural and sustainability and organic, there are a lot less consumers actually buying products for those reasons. I always mention this at work, that a majority of the market doesn't care, and they look at me like I'm from outer space. But I'm right. <laughs> so, uh, yeah. I mean, if you look at the top 10 selling uh, hair care products right now, you know, there's not a lot of natural ones out there. They also found that the idea of sustainability was not much of a purchase driver either. Only 33% of the survey respondents replied an emphatical yes that they'd be willing to pay more for a brand or a product that has sustainable manufacturing processes. I'm not even sure people know what sustainable manufacturing is though, right? No, and I don't even think people understand what sustainability is. I think it is a term that is becoming quickly and easily abused and At the end of the day, we're selling products where the packaging and other components have the landfill or water stream, waste stream in mind. And I I don't think people understand the sustainability aspect of that and how how it can be. I think it's just another term that people, you know, we're going to see it next on the Sephora Clean Beauty list. Sustainable, check. Right, right. Yeah, exactly. You know, I interestingly, I heard, I recently heard an episode of the Planet Money podcast, another one I listened to, um, and they did a whole bit about recycling. And if you want to get depressed about the state of recycling, go ahead and listen to that. <laughs> so anyway, there you have it. Uh, beauty consumers care more about whether their products work than whether they're good for the environment or even whether they're natural. I suppose that's why marketers have turned to clean beauty and away from natural beauty. I agree. 
Well, we covered one recall on today's show so far. Let's do another one in our recall roundup. Recall Roundup, the segment where Valerie and I go to the FDA website and find out all the products that have been recalled so you don't have to. Today's product that's been recalled, and if you have this, make sure you send it back, is Skin Iceland Solutions for Stressed Skin Micellar Cleansing Water with Arctic Algae. Mm. The micellar cleansing water was found to contain Burkholderia cipacea. Nice, nice jobs, guys. This is the kind of quality control you can expect from brands that like to claim that they are clean. And incidentally, I went and looked up their uh, ingredient list, and I was expecting to find no preservative. And they actually do have a preservative, phenoxyethanol and chlorphenicin. So not a terrible uh, preservative system, but certainly not good enough for all of the other ingredients that they're putting in there. No, and B. is a nasty organism, and even ordinary preservative systems have trouble with this guy. This is a new microorganism we're going to start to see a lot of, I think. And more than ever, it's very important brands use real preservatives in their products. I I know that there's a consumer base for um, preservative alternatives. Yeah. And alternatives. But at the end of the day, that's, it's just more dangerous. And the fact that they are recalling this cleansing water uh, means that there's probably more of the organism where it came from. So, wow, just something to really, really watch out for coming down the road. Clean beauty, contamination coming to you. Yeah, uh, we did have another recall that popped up this week. And again, not for uh, microbial contamination, but Henkel is the owner of the brand Alterna. And they are recalling... Their caviar anti-aging replenishing moisture CC cream and the anti caviar anti-aging replenishing moisture conditioning milk because the product has the wrong ingredient listing on the label. I thought that was Oops. a pretty interesting recall and I applaud Hankel for doing the right thing. Ingredient listings are required by law to be accurate for the contents inside the bottle so that you are aware of what you were buying before you buy it. And that's pretty cool that they said, you know what, we got to do the right thing and recall these products. Good on them. All right, let's get to our beauty questions. Our first question comes from Kitty from Instagram. That's not her real name, but it's in her user handle. So I I thought I'd call her Kitty. I think it's really cute. Um, And she heard- And we have the kitties at the end of the show. Yeah, so Kitty heard that if you apply henna, just henna on your hair, you can't apply regular color on the hair, the kind of hair color that uses hydrogen peroxide or vice versa. She would like to know if this is true, and if so, the scientific explanation behind it. She does love the show and would really appreciate if we could answer her question. That's the kind of hair color that uh, you specialize in, right? Exactly. So the good news is that, well, not henna, but um, I specialize in uh, traditional hair. Um, well, I don't want to say traditional because then you could argue, well, henna's traditional because sure, it's been sure. used as an herbal colorant for millennia, but I use conventional hair color in today's day and age. So the good news is that you can color your hair with henna if you've already used 
modern hair color or bleach on your hair. But if you have henna on your hair, unfortunately, it is not a good idea to go back to conventional coloring until the henna has grown out. Henna has been used as a colorant for thousands of years, and it is still employed as a hair colorant or skin decorative in certain cultures to this day. Henna is a term that refers to this big plant where the leaves from the plant are ground up into a fine powder. The powder is then mixed with hot water to form a paste, and then this is then applied to the hair while it's still hot. It's left on the hair for a very long time, often a couple hours, and the mixture is then rinsed from the hair and your hair is left with this reddish brown color. Interesting. Yeah, so true henna is this color. If you ever see hennas that are burgundy or black or other colors, run away from them. They're not purely henna and may contain other direct dyes or oxidative dyes to impart a desired color. And black henna is absolutely not henna at all, but rather um, a mixture of PPD. And not only is this extremely dangerous, it's illegal. So run from that kind. So you can achieve other end color results using henna combined with other herbal treatments like indigo and cassia, using them in various ratios, and the end result is still somewhat natural looking. Many users of henna for coloring hair enjoy it because they prefer to color their hair naturally without the chemicals that are used in modern hair colorants today, or maybe they have a sensitivity to these modern conventional hair dyes. The way henna works though is it's just kind of staining the hair, right? Exactly. So the main compound in it is called lawson, and this is essentially a really large chromophore. And you use heat and time to get everything to go into the hair, and it just kind of sticks in. It's a very large molecule. It really loves to bind in the hair. It's just really hard to rinse out. Oh, yeah. So I tried to be fair because, you know, people who use henna for hair color are very adamant. It's amazing. And I just think the amount of people using henna versus traditional hair color says that there's a lot of pros and cons either way. And so Mm -hmm. I did come up with a list of negatives. I tried not to, I tried to trim them down and I just felt like there were kind of a lot of negatives to using henna as a hair colorant. So all right, well, let's hear those. It's a messy process. Uh, You have to mix this powder with water and then apply this paste to head. And it's it's just very, very messy. Although I would say that doing regular hair coloring can be a bit messy too, right? It can be, but I think uh, the actual mixtures of oxidative hair color, it's a cream, a stylus can mix it on your head. Like, is it perfectly neat? No, it it can be messy, but the powder is extremely messy and powders dust everywhere. And then you have this hot water and it's... It's literally just like a a plant paste mixture. Um, It's not like really designed to stay on the hair and drip. Most people put a cap on and go about their day for two hours while they wear it. Henna literally stains everything and these stains do not (laughs) remove easily. That's why it's a good hair colorant, I guess. Yeah, it's uh, difficult to achieve tones that would be considered fashion tones. So if you're looking for a cool color, a rose gold, something like that, you're just not going to get that with henna. If you are not experienced in making variations of henna shades with these other herbal treatments, um, it can be very difficult to produce other shades. If you're not experienced, it can be very difficult to cover gray hair. So I say that because there are a lot of people in the world who are experienced at coloring hair with henna and they're very successful with it. Um, Unfortunately, that's not a majority of the population. The henna hair coloring process is deposit only. So you will either have to pre-lighten your hair 
before using it if you're looking to change a hair color. Traditional hair color, the hydrogen peroxide ammonia lift your current melanin out of the hair so it can deposit the new color. And with henna, you're just shoving more color into the hair fiber. You're not lifting it out. Um, henna right. is extremely difficult to move. It will not lift out of the hair fiber once it's put in. I've seen a lot of message boards over the years where people argue, I can remove henna out of the hair with bleach. You just don't know what you're doing. And I mean, the fact is like most people, it will not remove out of the hair, certain people's hair textures, it just will not respond to bleach. And even those experienced people finally admit like, well, yeah, I can't get all of it out, but I can get enough of it out to put more conventional hair color over it. So um, it literally, some henna will always remain in the hair. So if you're going to consider going blonde, don't use henna. <laughs> exactly. And the last negative about henna, which I think is one of the most important, all those other things, like if you're okay with that, that's cool. That's good. Uh, the most important negative point about henna is that it can be extremely dangerous if you do want to go back to conventional hair color. Ah, uh, so you pretty much have to wait till your hair grows out or exactly. Cut it off or something, right? Well, why? So this is because henna is a natural plant, and the whole plant is required to color the hair. So prior research in this area, they've tried to take just lawsone and color the hair fiber, and it just really doesn't work. So I think the whole henna plant has this entourage effect that helps color the hair. So what do you think is dangerous about that? Well, unfortunately, when you are using a natural plant and you're using the whole plant, you can have heavy metal content in there. And henna is a plant that can be high in heavy metals. These metals enter the plant from the roots as a result of environmental exposure. And if you don't like that kind of music, then it's really bad. Exactly. You might have to put some classical on. <laughs> classical hair color, that is. I'm just kidding. So what's the big deal about heavy metals? Once they're inside the hair fiber, and we've talked about metals a little bit on a prior episode, they really love to stay in there. And henna also loves to stay in there. So you have this double effect. The heat from the paste and the time typically left on the head really allow color penetration into the hair. And it can go really deep inside the hair fiber. And in addition to the colorant going in, these heavy metals are going in. So once you have all this henna on your hair and then you apply a conventional colorant on the hair that utilizes hydrogen peroxide, the hydrogen peroxide is going to react with any exogenous metals in the fiber, catalyzing a reaction, and typically a byproduct of the reaction is a lot of heat is generated. And it's not just a little warming sensation. I'm talking really dangerous temperatures ah. that can cause third-degree burns, burn the scalp. Oh, jeez. And I thought, like... You know, hair fiber when your scalp's getting burned off is like seriously the least of your worries. But even if you're not get, getting uh, yeah. like this really crazy dangerous heat, you're still having this uh, chemical reaction occurring in the hair fiber with the hydrogen peroxide. And even if you're not burned, you will get a ton of damage on the hair fiber. So, you know, once you color your hair with henna, like you need to be committed to it or... Um, let it grow out at least to a point where it can be cut off or if you are willing to risk and go get it lightened out of the hair that it's not being placed on your scalp but just be prepared for some hair damage this is one of the things where uh, an old technology that used to be great because that was the only thing we had has been sur 
planted by a superior technology. I don't know why people insist on continuing to use technologies that have just been replaced. It, it would be like if you refuse to use light bulbs and you just keep going with candles, you know? I guess you'll just get bad eyesight. Yeah, I don't know. I understand if people, some people like the look of henna. I actually work with a gal who really enjoys the, the reddish look from it. And yeah. I think some people think it's an art to be able to mix these herbs together. And then you yeah. legitimately have people who can't use conventional hair color because uh -huh. like anything on this planet, you can be sensitized to certain items, including henna, by the way. You could be um, irritated sure, or sure. allergic to that. But uh, they just really want an alternative and they can't use traditional or, you know, modern traditional hair dye. So um, I, I totally get it. That's a really good it. point. Yeah. But really good point, yeah. Gosh, just use conventional color if you can. Don't even. But the reality is, there's there's nothing, there's no color that henna can achieve that you can't achieve with a conventional hair color, right? Yeah, henna pretty much is just like this highlighter reddish brown color. So yeah, right. I would, <laughs> I would agree. All right, thanks for that question, Kitty. Valerie, it looks like we have an audio question. I love these. Hey Brains, this is Monica in Long Beach, California, and I can't find a true red lipstick. Every time I try one on, it reads either pink or brown or orange, and I heard that it's because several decades ago they outlawed the ingredient that they used to use to make that red color, and um, now they recommend that you pick a lipstick that works with your complexion to appear red, even though it's actually not red. So if you guys have any insight as to what with, went down with all that, I'd love to hear about it. Thanks so much. Red lipstick. Did you hear about this, Valerie? Red lipstick is, you can't get red lipstick? I've heard people say that, and I don't really know why they they do say that. I think people don't understand that, like, red is can be cool red can be warm there's all these nuances of red and you know they're like where's true red it's it seems it seems so strange to me because i look and i'm like yeah, I think there's like a hundred reds you know? like there's all kinds <laughs> well they're all very different perry and they all have a place <laughs> and they all coordinate with someone's skin tone <laughs> this is why I'm a terrible beauty consumer, <laughs> but I know how to make them. That's okay. Well, we know a lot about pigments, so what'd you find out? We do. Well, it turns out the main colorants that are used to make red lipsticks are red number six and red number seven. These pigments are used in mainstream lipsticks and lip gloss because they're kind of bright colors, they have a high intensity, they have good stability, and they're a good price. In fact, you can even see how much of these ingredients were sold because, you know, the FDA keeps published records on all of the batches of dyes that are sold every year. That's right. Yeah, and in fact, in 2017, the combined total amount of Red Six and Seven Lakes that were certified by the FDA was just over 1.2 million pounds. Wow. Other pigments are used as shading colors to tint these reds, and that's how you achieve all the hundreds of different of shades of red. By the way, for those of you guys who don't know, Perry has referenced the FDA keeps and publishes records of how many pigments were sold. That's because the 
pigment industry, the colorant industry, is one of the most highly regulated cosmetic ingredients in the world. And the FDA really checks that every batch imported into the United States has a certification and passes specifications for use. Exactly. More regulation in the cosmetic industry. So what about this notion that you can't find a true red lipstick? I wasn't really sure where this idea came from, but Monica may be referring to this notion that a certain red colorant, red number two, was banned in the U.S. in the 1970s. So if we back up a little bit, the first set of rules that affected colorants was introduced in the U.S. in 1906 with the passage of the Food and Drug Act. This established a list of approved color additives. Later in 1938, a more comprehensive law was passed called the Food, Drug, and Cosmetic Act, which created the FDA and then the basic laws that regulate the cosmetic industry that we still use today. Now, despite efforts to safeguard the public from unsafe colorants, in the early 1950s, several children fell ill eating foods that contained high level of color additives, and this mishap resulted in a color additives amendment of 1960, which then allowed the FDA to set use limitations of colorants to ensure that harmful levels would never be used. So that's sort of the legislation, and the 1960s is, is kind of when the first list of color, or 1959 actually, there was 116 certifiable colors that you could use for, for foods and cosmetics. In 2007, there's only 36 available, and so that does make it a bit harder to formulate colorful cosmetics, which is why the color cosmetics in the 1960s, you probably had more colors than we have today. Look at that, cosmetics being safer than ever. Uh, yeah, exactly. Who knew? It, you certainly couldn't tell based on what you read on the internet. Now, even today, there is debate about the safety of specific colorants, and some that are approved today may not be available in coming years. But okay, that's the background. Let's get back to that red colorant. Red number two was originally on the list of approved colorants. And in fact, it was one of the first ones that was put on the list back in 1906. But in 1971, scientists in the Soviet Union, they claimed that the ingredient caused cancer in rats. This prompted the FDA to collect more information on the ingredient, and in 1976, they removed it from the list of approved colorants, citing the potential to cause cancer in rats at high doses. Now, do you know what else is interesting? What? Well, you know how people always claim that Europe is much more strict with regulations than the U.S.? Oh, I hear it all the time. Well, in Europe, red number two is not banned. <laughs> oh, gosh. You can use it for creating food and lipsticks in the EU. You just can't do that in the United States. So here's a case where regulators in the U.S. are banning an ingredient because it's claimed to cause cancer. Well, in the EU, you know, anybody can use it because they have, even though we all have access to the same test data. It's, it's, it's kind of interesting how these things go. Yeah. Oh, geez. But you know, it's strange. If you go on the internet, you like search like ingredients banned. The, the stories are always... In, these ingredients are banned in Europe, but not in the United States. I've never seen one say these well, are these ingredients are banned in the U.S., but not in Europe. Should we come up with a list of them? That would be yeah, really that fun. Could, that could be interesting. So, Monica, you should be able to find a true red lipstick. In fact, Allure uh, has a list of 20 of the best red lipsticks of all time. I only mentioned that because I saw the slideshow posted in my Twitter feed today, so I'll provide a link to the show notes. 
Now, I will say, Perry, that because people are not using only red pigments in the lipsticks, they're maybe using other pigments present, or maybe they are, you can have lipsticks that are cool red, a neutral red, a warm red. So there will take a little fine-tuning to figure out which red works best on your skin tone. She should be able to find one. It's it's not easy. I will tell (laughs) you that. I I can barely relate, but... (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> but I do wonder, like, what would qualify to a person that's true red, right? What's the, what's the, there's so many reds. What, which one's the true one? Well, it also, you know, honestly has a lot to do with your underlying skin tone and what clothes you're wearing and what colors your hair. It's, it's really quite complex. And I wish I knew somebody who could find the right red lipstick for me, especially because I have such tiny lips, I can barely wear lipstick. I would really love that. Well, Alicia from Instagram, another Instagram question, is a huge fan of the podcast. She didn't know who to rant to, so she contacted us. And Alicia says, this is the most outrageous blog post I have ever read concerning sun protection. Where is she getting these claims? The headline, is your sunscreen doing more harm than good? Dun, dun, dun. I hope Alicia doesn't mind. I put a little inf- uh, you know, emphasis on some of the words when I was reading her concern. The link to the blog is in the show notes, and it is a wellness blog founded by uh, one person, and she has a conglomerate of contributors and writers with various backgrounds on being oh, green. My. They do a lot of work in other areas of the world, which is super fantastic, but what infuriates me is that they are chiming in on areas where they're not experts. And I think that's where there's a lot of opportunity to spread misinformation on the internet, such as the lack of shortage of misinformation in this article. Mm. What probably infuriated Alicia besides the headline is that this article, which provides an overview of the dangers of sunscreens, actually says, and this is what really upset me was that sunscreens are actually causing more cancer in children than it is preventing cancer. Oh my, my, oh my. Yeah. I, I feel really horrible reading that. And then the article continues to overview FDA regulations. It reviews how antiquated the sunscreen regulations are, which, you know, is true, but what we currently have on the market is that is the guidelines and they are safe to use. It also talks about the EWG, who has this list of all these sunscreens that are killing oh, people. Brother. And I, I won't go through um, through more. You can review it for yourself in the show notes. But the final advice that this article gives is that sunscreens are scary. The science is inconclusive. No, it's not. <laughs> and the author recommends, this is what you do, you You look at your sunscreen on the EWG database. If it sucks, you put it in the trash. Then you wear protective... (laughs) I'm laughing because it's so (laughs) ridiculous. You then wear protective clothing. You eat your sunscreens. And you get plenty of vitamin D through intermittent sun exposure and supplementation. This is terrible. And in another article, the same author, and the author happened to be the founder of the website, posted a DIY sunscreen recipe with olive oil, coconut oil, beeswax, shea butter, and the highest quality, I put that in air quotes, zinc oxide you can find. 
Oh boy, this is. Uh, <laughs> I'm just yeah. shaking my head. That's that's the the criteria, the highest quality zinc oxide you can find. That's op- open to your interpretation. But so, of course, not 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 nano zinc oxide. Yeah, actually, she said avoid nanos right, and one of her other lists. Oh brother, well, Valerie, it's so strange. Like anybody can write anything on the internet. How how do authors get away with saying just ridiculous, harmful stuff like this? Well, it's free speech. Uh, I mean, it comes down to our right in the United States of America to have free speech and probably similar regulations or laws or rights in in some other parts of the world. And free speech is great. However, people should always remember that free speech doesn't mean freedom from consequences. And whether or not the blogger has a true understanding of this science other than reading information on other websites and regurgitating a compilation she found on the internet is unclear. And when you were providing advice that can put people in danger, you know, maybe you have the right to say it, but if if something goes wrong, you can be liable if someone were to come after you for that. Yeah. It's, I mean, Don't forget America's the land of lawsuits. So I just, ugh. yeah, I, I mean, I do appreciate our take on free speech, but that does let let in these terrible speech, and it, and consumers have a hard time knowing. Like some unsuspecting person might, this might come up in Google, and then they read that you should use coconut oil and shea butter for a sunscreen, and then they're going to get burned. It just, it's it's very frustrating. Yeah, and I'm very frustrated by it too. And I actually have a cosmetic chemist friend who even just yesterday on the internet said she had come across a different article. She just said, you know, I want to say something to the person who wrote the article, but I don't want to come off as attacking them, but I'm really concerned how dangerous this advice is. And I, I told her, I wish I could help you. I don't know what the answer is because we will never change green mama's mind on the dangers in sunscreen will never change her mind that DIY sunscreen is extremely dangerous, especially for children. And I don't know what the answer is, but she's allowed to say these things because of free speech. All we can do is say the truth louder. So, And that's the way we get it louder is we get more people listening to the beauty brain. So (laughs) if, if you have a friend who's not listening, tell them to listen. Yeah, share the podcast with them, or if they ever bring anything up we've ever covered on the show, say, hey, I have to share something with you. Or you can hold an intervention with them and play the episode for them as you, you stand around. Looks like we have time for one more question. One last question. Hey, y'all. I am so excited y'all are back on the air. This show has flipped the script on how I look at hair and beauty products. And y'all make sure I'm up on game when it comes to my product labels and claims. But my question is more about a process, I guess. Is hydro fatigue a real thing? I heard you shouldn't wet your hair and let it dry too often, such as washing your hair every day because of hydro fatigue and repetitive breaking of the hydrogen bonds. I also heard you shouldn't let it stay wet for too long, like more than an hour when deep conditioning. How true is this? You know, you learn something new every day. You haven't heard of that before? No, I had never heard of that. Well, I had, you know, I had known the cycle of getting hair wet and drying it. I knew that was damaging the hair, of course. I didn't know it was referred to as hygro fatigue. That is what it is, I guess. So it, it, yes, it is indeed. It's a real thing. Yep. 
you know, as an aside, the earliest mention of high-growth fatigue I saw was in a paper from 2001 by the good folks over at the Textile Research Institute, Yash Kamath. He and his team, they use that term in their research, and this was the same paper that looked at the difference between coconut oil and mineral oil in terms of how it penetrates the hair. Oh, very interesting. Yeah, I actually think I read this paper more for the penetration of the oils, less for hygro fatigue. Anyway, in their paper, they talk about hygro fatigue, and it turns out when you get untreated hair wet, it swells 16% in diameter, but only 2% in length. So this naturally will lead to the cuticles stretching out when it's wet and then not laying down uh, flat when the hair dries. This is the damage caused by high growth fatigue. Now, when you treat the hair fibers with mineral oil and coconut oil, this research showed that fiber swelling was reduced. So that implies the damage from high growth fatigue was also reduced, which makes sense. It would have been a bit more interesting if they also included conditioner treated hair, but you know, I, I, I digress. I don't create these studies, I suppose. I think they chose those two items because they're extremely hydrophobic and they easily prevent water from getting into the hair. I thought they would have maybe chosen a silicone or something else, but I think maybe they were looking for extreme case study, but it would have been natural to have a real life study. I know a lot of people are putting coconut oil on their hair, which I hate for a lot of reasons. We won't get into that in this episode, but... You went on your coconut rant about episode 181 or something Oh, gosh. I I have like 50 different coconut rants, so (laughs) anyway... So the bottom line is, yes, high growth fatigue is a real thing, and it refers to the damage done to hair fibers when you get them wet and then when you dry them. The less often that you get your hair wet and dry, the less damage that you're going to do to the fibers. Although in the scheme of things that cause damage to hair, it's much less damaging than, say, getting your hair colored. As to the second part of your question, how long should you let your hair stay wet? Well, We couldn't find research on this exact question. Turns out nobody has done this. But I did find a study that looked at the different methods of drying hair and how that affected damage. The paper was published in 2011 in the Annals of Dermatology called Hair Shaft Damage from Heat and Drying Time of Hair Dryer. Unexpectedly, the researchers found that it's much more damaging to the surface of hair to blow dry or towel dry than it is to just let your hair air dry. And that's because the heat from the blow dryers can damage the cuticles and then the physical abrasion from towel drying can also help knock off the cuticles and wear them away. So if you dry your hair a lot, you'll end up with less shine and a lot more split ends. However, the researchers also found that there was indeed some subsurface damage done by air drying, specifically damage to a so-called cell membrane complex that's in the hair. This is a special structure in the hair fibers that's made up of a mixture of proteins and lipids, and that keeps the cuticle and the cortex together. Air drying actually damages uh, this way in a way that blow drying doesn't. They also concluded that it's conceivable that a long-lasting wet stage is as harmful as high drying temperature. Uh, Further evaluation about contact time with water or wet environment and hair damage is needed. So there's more studies, of course. And they concluded, although using a hair dryer caused more surface damage than natural drying, the results of this study suggest that using a hair dryer at a distance of 15 centimeters with continued motion causes less damage than drying the hair naturally. 
Well, it is just one study. It'd be interesting to see more work done. Yeah, I would agree. I'm I'm still a little skeptical of this, but and the amount of like keeping your hair wet longer leading to more damage, that question wasn't directly studied, but it does kind of follow from this research on hair drying. So anyway, I, yeah. I don't know how much stock I put in this, but it, it was interesting. I, I, I thought I would have just thought uh, air drying doesn't cause more damage. No, well, I think um, at the end of the day, just getting your hair wet causes damage. I think I would have thought heat treating was worse than air drying, not thinking like air drying didn't have damage, but the, the bottom line is getting your hair wet causes damage. And if right. you're really worried about high growth fatigue, you should just not get your hair wet. Incidentally, you don't actually need to leave your hair wet for very long if you're doing a deep conditioner. I mean, pretty much all the conditioning that you're going to get is will be gotten pretty much soon after you put the product on. It doesn't take a while for it to soak in. I know intensive conditioners are, the, are designed that way, and they say in the directions to make it more experiential. But the reality is, it's once you get that product on your hair, it's pretty much uh, on your hair and doing its stuff. You don't have to leave it in longer. I think that's all we have time for today, guys. On our next episode, we'll take a look at anti-dandruff shampoos, how they work, and whether they are really effective. Plus, we'll cover some other beauty industry news and a few of your other beauty product questions. Incidentally, if you have a question and want to hear your voice on the show, just record something on your smartphone, then email it to thebeautybrains at gmail.com. And if you are too shy, you can just email your question in and, or post it in the Ask a Question link in the show notes. And don't forget, we have our social media accounts that work for questions as well. Yeah, on Instagram, we're at The Beauty Brains 2018. On Twitter, we're at The Beauty Brains. And we have a Facebook page, The Beauty Brains. If you guys get a chance, go over to iTunes and leave us a review. It helps other people find the show. So you can intervene with your friends and show them the light about beauty products. And it also helps ensure we have a full docket of beauty questions to answer. And as a quick reminder, the Beauty Brains are now on Patreon. If you want to show support of the show, Patreon is the best way to do that. This will help keep the show ad-free and prevent us from having to go back to corporate America, or at least me, and work for one of those big beauty brand companies where we make all the big bucks. So if you like what we do and you want to see us keep doing it, go to patreon.com slash thebeautybrains and subscribe. Thanks again for listening. And remember, be brainy about your beauty. Kittens. <laughs>